The World Headlines Ohio Senate primary encapsulates the Republican Party. It was the greatest hits of conservative fantasy last night on stage in Wilberforce, Ohio, as the Republican Senate candidates clashed in another debate. Topics of discussion Massive ballot harvesting operations in urban areas. Jail time for Dr. Anthony Fauci. A defense of representatives Marjorie Taylor Greene and Madison Cawthorn. Hunter Biden's laptop and Joe Biden's family crime syndicate. A total deportation of immigrants in the country illegally and the restoration of Donald Trump to the White House as quickly as possible. It was the perfect tableau of just how much Trump has colored the identity of the Republican Party. And that fever may be what costs Republicans their shot at a majority this fall. Democrats are defending the narrowest 50-50 majority coalition in the Senate, with Vice President Kamala Harris able to break the tie. Republicans are eyeing a map that has many routes to reclaim the gavel in early 2023, including pickup opportunities in Georgia, Nevada, Arizona, and maybe even New Hampshire. Democrats, by contrast, need to hold those current seats or offset tough races with pickup chances in places like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, or perhaps even Ohio. It's way too early to responsibly assess odds this far from Election Day, but the declared contenders do offer hints as to each party's strategy. Just take Ohio, where the Senate primary has devolved in large part into an attempt for the candidates to present themselves as the best avatar for Trump's America First rhetoric. Polling to this point has been thin, but it's a good bet that the closer candidates stand to Trump's spotlight, the hotter they are politically. Misreading the Room why Hun Sen is failing on Myanmar. When Cambodian Prime Minister Hun Sen became the first head of state to visit Myanmar since the military seized power in a coup last year, he seemed to think he would be able to bring the generals back into the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN, despite the country's worsening humanitarian crisis. I am thinking whether we should keep ASEAN 9 or ASEAN 10, because, in the recent ASEAN summit, we have only 9, this is a problem, he said ahead of the January trip. In an unprecedented move, the group excluded Myanmar's coup leaders from its annual summit and a special summit with China in 2021, because they failed to make progress on an ASEAN-brokered peace plan, which included an end to violence and negotiations with all parties. The military is believed to have killed more than 1,700 civilians since seizing power, sparking a broadening civil war. It has also declared the National Unity Government, NUG, set up by elected politicians thrown out of office by the generals, a terrorist organization locked up civilian leader Aung San Suu Kyi in an undisclosed location and refused to allow ASEAN representatives to meet either her or the NUG. Many feared Hun Sen would try to rehabilitate the military and its leader, Senior General Min Aung Lang, his visit was met with protests and statements of condemnation, but he came away empty-handed. In February, a frustrated Hun Sen said there were only 10 and a half months left of his 12-month tenure as ASEAN chairman and suggested the next chair, Indonesia, should solve the crisis. I'm in a situation where I'm damned if I do and damned if I don't, so just let it be, he complained. Florida signs controversial ed bill. How will it affect classes? Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a bill into law on Monday that forbids instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity in kindergarten through third grade, a policy that has drawn intense national scrutiny from critics who argue it marginalizes LGBTQ people. The legislation has pushed Florida and Mr. DeSantis, 
an ascending Republican and potential 2024 presidential candidate, to the forefront of the country's culture wars. LGBTQ advocates, students, Democrats, the entertainment industry, and the White House have dubbed the measure the Don't Say Gay Law. Mr. DeSantis and other Republicans have repeatedly said the measure is reasonable and that parents, not teachers, should be broaching subjects of sexual orientation and gender identity with their children. The law went into effect just days after Mr. DeSantis signed a separate bill that potentially restricts what books elementary schools can keep in their libraries or use for instruction. We will make sure that parents can send their kids to school to get an education, not an indoctrination, Mr. DeSantis said to applause, before he signed the sexual orientation and gender identity measure during a ceremony at a preparatory school outside Tampa. The law states, classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity may not occur in kindergarten through grade 3 or in a manner that is not age-appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards. Parents would be able to sue districts over violations. Public backlash began almost immediately after the bill was introduced, with early criticism lobbed by Chasen Buttigieg, the husband of United States Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, and condemnation from LGBTQ advocacy groups. Democratic President Joe Biden called it hateful. CDC recommends fourth Pfizer and Moderna COVID vaccine doses for people age 50 and older. The top U.S. health regulators on Tuesday cleared fourth COVID vaccine doses for older adults, amid uncertainty over whether an even more contagious version of Omicron will cause another wave of infections in the U.S. as it has in Europe and China. The FDA authorized Pfizer and Moderna fourth doses for everyone age 50 and older, as well as a fifth dose for certain younger people with compromised immune systems. People age 12 and older with weakened immune systems are eligible for a Pfizer fifth dose and those 18 and older with the same condition are eligible for Moderna. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention quickly signed off on the decision, paving the way for those eligible to get a new round of boosters. The CDC also recommended that all adults who received two doses of Johnson & Johnson's vaccine get third shots using Pfizer or Moderna. Adults who received the J&J vaccine and a second shot of Pfizer or Moderna are not yet eligible for a third dose unless they are age 50 and older or have compromised immune systems. All of the new boosters are to be administered at least four months after the last shot. The FDA and CDC made the decision without calling meetings of their vaccine advisory committees, a rare move the agencies have made more frequently over the course of the pandemic to expand uses of already approved COVID vaccines. The drug regulator's authorization comes just two weeks after Pfizer and Moderna asked the FDA to permit a second booster shot based on data from Israel. The FDA's Advisory Committee on Vaccines is scheduled to meet on April 6 to discuss the future of booster shots in the U.S. The vaccine experts are expected to hold a broad discussion about boosters and will not vote on a specific recommendation. Dr. Peter Marks, head of the FDA office responsible for vaccine safety and efficacy, said the drug regulator did not call an advisory meeting because the decision was relatively straightforward. FDA allows second COVID boosters for everyone 50 and older. Federal regulators authorized second booster shots of the Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna coronavirus vaccines on Tuesday for everyone 50 and older, describing the move as an effort to bolster waning immunity against severe disease in case the virus sweeps the nation again in the coming months. 
The Food and Drug Administration said people in the age group could get the additional shot at least four months after their first booster. The agency also authorized a second booster for people 12 and older with certain immune deficiencies. The decision means that tens of millions of Americans are now eligible for what would be their fourth shot. And even though the public may be tiring of repeated doses, the move is most likely an interim one. Federal health officials say it is quite possible that Americans of all ages may need another shot in the fall to prepare for any winter surge. The hope is that by then, scientists will have reconfigured the existing vaccines to work better and last longer against the variants that have emerged since November. Federal health officials initially considered limiting second boosters to those at least 60 or 65 years old. But at a news briefing, Dr. Peter Marks, who oversees the FDA's vaccine division, said a lower age limit made more sense because so many Americans over 50 have chronic medical conditions that put them at risk. While a single booster dose continues to protect most Americans from hospitalization and death due to COVID-19, he said, those 50 or older who got their first booster more than four months ago should seriously consider getting another. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention was a bit more circumspect. In the fall, when the first round of boosters was authorized, the agency cited a clear benefit from an added shot. How confusion over COVID-19 transmission still haunts us. Two years after the pandemic began, we finally have a good understanding of how COVID-19 is transmitted, some infected people exhale virus in small, invisible particles, aerosols. These do not fall quickly to the ground, but move in the air like cigarette smoke. Other people can get infected when breathing in those aerosols, either in close proximity, in shared room air, or less frequently, at a distance. But the journey to accepting the overwhelming scientific evidence of how COVID-19 spread was far too slow and contentious. Even today, the updated guidance and policies of how to protect ourselves remain haphazardly applied, in part because of one word, airborne. This fundamental misunderstanding of the virus disastrously shaped the response during the first few months of the pandemic and continues to this day. We still see it now in the surface cleaning protocols that many have kept in place even while walking around without masks. There is a key explanation for this early error. In hospitals, the word airborne is associated with a rigid set of protective methods, including the use of N95 respirators by workers and negative pressure rooms for patients. These are resource-intensive and legally required. There was a shortage of N95s at the beginning of the pandemic, so it would have been difficult, if not impossible, to fully implement airborne precautions in hospitals. Due to its specific meaning in hospitals and long-standing misunderstanding about how airborne transmission actually happens and underappreciation of its importance, public health officials were wary of saying the word, even though it would have been the clearest way to communicate with the public about transmission and how to control it. Global shares rally as traders focus on Russia-Ukraine peace talks. Equities rallied and oil prices fell on Tuesday after Russia said it would reduce its military operations near Ukraine's capital, Kiev. On Wall Street, the benchmark S&P 500 and the technology-heavy Nasdaq composite rose to more than two-month highs, with the indices closing up 1.2% and 1.8% respectively. Both are still down this year. The rally in U.S. stocks came as Russia said it had decided to dramatically scale back military activities in the Kiev and Chernihiv areas after envoys from Moscow and Ukraine met in Istanbul on Tuesday to discuss a possible peace deal. Brent crude, the international oil benchmark, 
settled 2% lower to $110.23 a barrel, having risen close to $140 in early March. As Wall Street rallied, the U.S. Treasury market signaled that investors were worried that the Federal Reserve's tighter monetary policy could dramatically slow economic growth. The yield on two-year Treasury notes briefly rose above the yield on 10-year note for the first time since August 2019 a move that is closely watched by policymakers and investors as a potential indicator of recession. At the end of Tuesday's session in New York, the yield on the 10-year Treasury had fallen 0.07 percentage points to 2.39%, while the two-year yield was roughly flat at 2.36%. Analysts at Bank of America wrote on Monday that the recent stock market rally defies fundamentals and was unlikely to last, with the rates market more accurately reflecting the gloomier picture. Gillam Savry, cross-asset manager at Unigestion, said equity markets had been boosted by short-term, trend-following hedge fund strategies, but said this could reverse quickly. We are in a short-term positive cycle that will change once there is a negative geopolitical event or negative economic growth data, he added. Putin and his high command are already hunkering in secret nuclear bunkers. New evidence has emerged Vladimir Putin and his highest-ranking commanders are running the war in Ukraine from top-secret nuclear bunkers. Movements of planes used by top Kremlin officials show Putin may be in a hideaway near Surgut, in western Siberia, it has been claimed. His defense minister Sergei Shoigu, who has been mysteriously absent for several weeks, sparking rumors about his health, is believed to be in a bunker near Ufa in the Urals, 725 miles east of Moscow, according to investigative journalist Christo Grozev. This theory is backed up by his daughter Ksenia Shoigu, 31, visiting Ufa for an estimated three days from March 22, with mounting speculation the defense minister is suffering from heart problems. She also abruptly barred public access to her Instagram where she had posed with her baby in the blue and yellow colors of Ukraine. The suspected use of the high-security nuclear bunkers is concerning as it leads to suggestions Putin may be prepared to deploy nuclear weapons, a move that would lead to inevitable reprisals. Vladimir Putin and Defense Minister Sergei Shugi at the Victory Day Parade in Moscow, in 2019. Both may now be operating the Ukraine war from bunkers, flight tracking information suggests. Movements of planes used by top Kremlin officials show Putin may be in a hideaway near Surgut in western Siberia, it is claimed. Meanwhile his defense minister Sergei Shoigu, who has been mysteriously absent for several weeks, sparking rumors about his health, is believed to be in a bunker near Ufa in the Urals. Trump asks Putin to release info on Hunter Biden business deal. Former President Donald Trump said Russian leader Vladimir Putin should release information on an alleged business deal involving Hunter Biden, President Joe Biden's embattled son. In a new interview Tuesday, Trump discussed an alleged $3.5 million wire transfer from Russian billionaire Elena Bacharina to Hunter Biden's investment firm that was outlined in a report by Senate Republicans made public ahead of the 2020 election. So now I would think Putin would know the answer to that, Trump said on Just the News airing on Real America's voice network. I think he should release it. I think we should know that answer. Hunter Biden is facing a federal tax probe, with a grand jury convened in Delaware. On Monday, it was revealed that Hunter received a $142,000 plug-in hybrid sports car from a Kazakhstani banking oligarch in 2014. His infamous laptop was entered into the congressional record on Tuesday. 
Trump's comments on Putin came as the Russian president has been sanctioned and ostracized by the West for his continued assault on Ukraine. In a clip of the interview, Trump references Bacharina, widow of former Moscow mayor Yuri Lushkov. President Biden this week said he wasn't, walking back, comments that Putin should be removed from power due to the invasion. I wasn't then, nor am I now, articulating a policy change, Biden said. I was expressing the moral outrage that I feel and I make no apologies for it. Trump ally Senator Lindsey Graham, RSC, had called for the Russian president's assassination in controversial comments in the early days of the invasion. After 20 years of Putin, an irked Biden anticipates a new Russian leader. Western security is entwined with the fate of one man, Vladimir Putin. Over his 20 years of running Russian affairs, Mr. Putin has constantly worked to destabilize Western democratic systems by corrupting civil society and advancing friendly, authoritarian-minded leaders. And now, with Mr. Putin employing his military to pursue regime change in democratic Ukraine, Western leaders are eager to roll out the red carpet for Russia's next leader. Like it or not, Mr. Putin is finally seeing the consequences of constantly provoking the West's preternaturally patient democracies. As America's President Joe Biden blurted during a rousing call for Western unity earlier this week, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. The president's March 26 comment was met with a lot of nervous hand-wringing. Among the fretful, any mention of a Russia without Putin sparks a fear that the spurned autocrat might unleash some sort of retaliation. Even the stolid old Washington Post editorial board took to the fainting couch, penning a caution that presidents shouldn't wish for things that they do not actually have the intention or capability to achieve. Such strange rationale, if applied elsewhere, would find fault with much of Winston Churchill's epic World War II oratory, as Mr. Churchill's initial exhortations for a unified victory over fascism were beyond England's capability. In Washington, D.C., the performative uproar was so dramatic that the more timid or just the more malleable elements of Biden's administration encouraged the president to walk back his quip as a mere expression of moral outrage. Mr. Putin has fewer qualms. In fact, his signature goal over two decades has been, in essence, to pursue regime change in Russia's, near abroad, while weakening free democracies at every turn. Biden says Asia-Pacific region still a priority amid Ukraine war. U.S. President Joe Biden has warned that the war in Ukraine threatens the rules-based international order, including in the Asia-Pacific region, where Washington is locked in growing competition with Beijing. Speaking at the White House on Tuesday alongside the Prime Minister of Singapore, Lee Shin Long, Biden said, all nations have a right to territorial integrity and sovereignty regardless of their size or population. It's clear that Putin's war is unacceptable to nations in every region in the world, not just in Europe but in every region of the world, Biden told reporters. It's an attack on the core international principles that underpin peace and security and prosperity everywhere. That was echoed by Lee, who spoke out against Russia's invasion of Ukraine and said, the sovereignty, political independence and territorial integrity of all countries, big and small, must be respected. The meeting came as the United States continues to threaten China with consequences if it comes to Russia's aid in Ukraine and separately pushes back against Beijing's growing influence in the Asia-Pacific. While the conflict in Ukraine has dominated attention globally, Biden said his administration is strongly supportive of moving rapidly to implement the Indo-Pacific strategy. The Biden administration announced that strategy in February, 
pledging to commit more diplomatic and security resources to the region to counter what it sees as China's bid to create a regional sphere of influence. Biden also said on Tuesday that he wanted to ensure that the region remains free and open, a reference to what the White House sees as attempts by China to dominate international trade routes. For his part, Lee urged closer ties between the U.S. and the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN, saying, it helps the U.S. to be present in the Asia-Pacific. The Russia-Ukraine war may be bad news for nuclear non-proliferation. As we watch with horror and sadness the extreme devastation associated with Russia's ongoing attack on Ukraine, with perhaps 10 million displaced and up to 20,000 killed to date, another potential casualty of this conflict is the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and the general international effort to prevent the spread of nuclear weapons. Alas, though some arms control advocates would like to argue that the only purpose of nuclear weapons is to deter a nuclear attack on one's territory, recent world events confirm that nuclear weapons can have another plausible purpose for some countries. For smaller or weaker states, owning nuclear weapons helps ensure that a large country will not be able to attack them and overthrow their government. Or, at least, the converse is true, not having nukes clearly leaves one vulnerable. Just ask Saddam Hussein, who did not have nuclear weapons, about the 2003 Iraq War. Or Muammar Gaddafi, who also did not have nuclear weapons, about the 2011 NATO air campaign launched against Libya after he threatened to exterminate domestic opponents. Of course, we cannot really ask them, because not only are their regimes gone, they are dead, as a direct consequence of wars that they could not deter with conventional arms alone. Watching all this, Kim Jong-un had already made the calculation, long before the Ukraine war, that he would cherish the North Korean nuclear weapons that his grandfather and father had bequeathed him. Our efforts to persuade him to denuclearize have failed under U.S. President Joe Biden's four immediate predecessors, and the Biden team itself appears to be putting little effort into the quest itself, perhaps out of recognition that the task is just too hard if attempted in absolutist terms. North Korea is not alone. 24 years ago we tried to persuade Pakistan not to test nuclear weapons after India had done so. Russia repositions troops away from Kiev, marking a shift in the war. A view shows an armored convoy of pro-Russian troops in the course of Ukraine-Russia conflict on a road leading to the besieged southern port city of Mariupol, Ukraine March 28, 2022. The Russian military has begun to move some of its troops in Ukraine away from the areas around Kiev to positions elsewhere at Ukraine, Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby said Tuesday, part of a strategic shift in its month-long invasion of Ukraine. Up until recently, we had still assessed that their plan was was to occupy and annex Ukraine using approaches along three lines of attack, Kirby told reporters at the Pentagon. Now we think they're going to prioritize the east of Ukraine. Russian troops' convoys have been stalled in the north around the capital, he said, while initial Russian progress in the south had also stalled out. U.S. officials said several days ago that Russian troops had stopped gaining new ground around Kiev, and instead were digging defensive positions. Now it appears that at least some of those troops, a small number, according to Kirby, are actually leaving. Russia has failed in its objective of capturing Kiev, he said. It has failed in its objective of subjugating Ukraine. Still, Kirby cautioned that the troop movements do not amount to a retreat, as some observers had speculated. We believe that this is a repositioning, not a real withdrawal, said Kirby and that we all should be prepared to watch for a major offensive against other areas of Ukraine.
Kirby spoke several hours after a member of the Russian negotiating team in Istanbul announced that the Ministry of Defense had decided to radically, at times, reduce military activity in the Kiev and Chernikiv direction. The Kremlin official claimed the reduced military activity was meant to increase mutual trust and create the necessary conditions for further negotiations. The Russian Air Force is losing its best jets over Ukraine. The Sukhoi Su-34 was supposed to change the Russian Air Force. The twin-engine, twin-seat, supersonic fighter-bomber, a highly evolved variant of the Su-27 air superiority fighter, promised to usher in a new era of high-tech, precision bombing. Instead, the Su-34s have flown into Ukraine lugging the same old dumb bombs. A lack of precision-guided munitions, not to mention Russian doctrine that conceives of aircraft essentially as flying artillery, forces the $50 million warplanes to fly low through the thickest Ukrainian air defenses in order to have any chance of delivering their bombs with any degree of accuracy. As a result, Su-34s are falling from the sky in numbers that must be startling for Air Force commanders. Their newest planes are suffering the same fate as their oldest. The Russian Air Force ordered its first batch of 32 Su-34s back in 2008. A second batch of 92 followed in 2012. The Russians as of 2021 possessed around 122 Su-34s in several regiments. Even taking into account losses, by 2030 the Air Force could operate nearly 200 Su-34s. The plan, all along, has been for the Su-34 to replace the 1970s vintage Su-24, around 70 of which linger in service. Nowhere was that more evident than in Syria. The Kremlin deployed Su-34s to Syria starting in November 2015, shortly after a Turkish F-16 shot down a Russian Su-24 that reportedly strayed into Turkey's airspace. The Su-34 is impressive to look at. The type borrows the airframe of the Su-27 but adds a two-person cockpit with side-by-side -side seating. The Su-34 can strike targets as far as 600 miles away while carrying 12 tons of bombs and missiles, including air-to-air -air missiles. The 22-ton jet is armed with a 30mm cannon and also boasts a multi-mode radar and a Kibini electronic countermeasures suite. In theory, the Su-34 is compatible with an array of precision-guided missiles and bombs. The real reason why Ukraine's information war is so successful. It's been just over a month since the beginning of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a large-scale modern war that is being live-streamed, minute by minute, battle by battle, death by death, to the world. In this short time span, the conflict has possibly become the most documented war in human history, and is, perhaps, the greatest example of information warfare techniques used online and through other communicative means the world has ever seen. A month into the invasion, the Ukrainian military has performed better than expected, surviving the initial Russian push. A second, more static phase seems to have begun, as noted by the Institute of the Study of War, a condition in war in which each side conducts offensive operations that do not fundamentally alter the situation. Just as surprising as the current state of the ground war is how Ukraine has adeptly defended against Russian information warfare efforts. The current debate now is whether Ukraine has gone even further and achieved supremacy in the information domain. This is a reality that a month ago seemed unlikely, as Russia's use of information and hybrid warfare to achieve its strategic objectives was regarded as vastly superior to that of Ukraine's. The tables have turned. 
It's also clear that Ukraine is engaging in propaganda to highlight its military successes, rather than its failures. Information doesn't exist in a vacuum, however, and any praise or critique of the Ukrainian information warfare effort should consider that it is their current successes on the ground that are leading to victories in the information domain. Information is a battleground fought by exploiting ethnic tensions, spreading disinformation, jamming communications, infiltration, and creating narratives through selective photos, video clips and news releases presented in such a way as to garner sympathy and solidarity from the rest of the world, while inspiring fear and sowing chaos. Ukraine has offered neutrality in talks with Russia, what would that mean? Ukraine has offered to accept becoming neutral if it receives adequate security guarantees from Western nations, abandoning aspirations to join NATO. But those moves would require amending the constitution or a referendum, neither of which can be done in wartime, analysts say. What is neutrality? Under international law, a country is neutral if it won't interfere in situations of international armed conflict involving other belligerent parties. It cannot allow a belligerent party to use its territory as a base of military operations, take sides or supply military equipment. What has Zelensky said? President Volodymyr Zelensky acknowledged on March 15 that Ukraine was not able to join NATO. We've heard for years that the door is open, but we also heard that we can't join. That's the truth we much recognize, Zelensky said in remarks seen as abandoning Ukraine's NATO aspirations and considered by some Ukrainians as an unacceptable concession. At peace talks in Turkey on Tuesday, Ukrainian negotiators said Kyiv was ready to accept neutrality if, under an international accord, Western states like the United States, France and Britain provided binding security guarantees. However, Ukraine's aspiration to join NATO is written in the country's constitution, which cannot be amended during martial law, as is in effect now, or during a state of emergency. Could Ukraine change its constitution? Any change would require approval of the measure by 300 out of 450 lawmakers in two separate parliamentary sessions, and then be validated by the Constitutional Court. There aren't the 300 votes today, but if the conflict continues and we see that NATO isn't helping, opinions could change, said Ukrainian political scientist Volodymyr Fisenko. Zelensky's disappointment with insufficient NATO aid is shifting public opinion. For us, NATO is the simplest and least painful concession, he added. How the war in Ukraine is causing indirect deaths The Russian attacks on Ukraine are having a devastating impact on civilians. But the health consequences extend far beyond the effects of bombing and shelling. Although it may not be the most urgent threat Ukrainians face, COVID remains a serious risk. Crowded trains, bomb shelters and refugee processing facilities provide ideal conditions for COVID transmission. In the country, Russian attacks have destroyed healthcare facilities and cut off humanitarian aid routes, and those hospitals that are still operating are running out of resources such as oxygen and vital medical supplies. The war in Ukraine is having devastating consequences for the health of Ukraine's people that will reverberate for years or decades to come, said World Health Organization Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus at the United Nations Security Council meeting on Ukraine on March 17. When Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24, COVID cases in the country had been declining from their early February Omicron peak of more than 37,000 per day. But since the war began, COVID testing has decreased, and the number of new cases Ukraine's health authorities are reporting is likely an undercount. 
Ukraine also has a relatively low vaccination rate. Only about 36% of Ukrainians are estimated to have received shots, making it likelier that at least some of those who contract the disease will have a severe case. COVID is still a threat. It hasn't gone away, but priorities certainly changed, says Paul Spiegel, director of the Center for Humanitarian Health at Johns Hopkins University. For those who were concentrating on COVID before, now you're worried about your life. You're worried about leaving the country, your children, your partner. Spiegel says the conditions many refugees are facing are likely to increase transmission of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID. While he worries this could lead to an uptake in cases among refugees. Several killed in Mykolaiv attack. At least 12 were killed and 33 others wounded when a Russian rocket hit a regional government building in the southern Ukrainian port city, local authorities say. At least 12 people have been killed and 33 others wounded in a rocket attack on the regional administration building in the southern port city of Mykolaiv in Ukraine, local authorities have said. Russian forces struck the nine-story building at 8.45 a.m., 5.45 Greenwich Mean Time, on Tuesday, destroying its central section from the first to the ninth floor, the State Emergency Service SES, said on its Telegram channel. 33 of those wounded were pulled from the rubble, it said, adding that search and rescue operations were continuing. Video and images posted on social media by regional administrator Vitaly Kim showed thick plumes of smoke billowing in the sky and a massive hole in the building. Since the invasion of Ukraine began on February 24, Russian forces have attacked Ukraine's southern ports including Kherson, Odessa, Mykolaiv and Mariupol as they try to cut Ukraine off from the Black Sea and establish a land corridor from Russia to Crimea, the peninsula Russia seized in 2014. Al Jazeera's Stephanie Decker, reporting from Mykolaiv, said the atmosphere in the southern port city was very tense following the attack. You can see a lot of the windows of the apartments here and in the surrounding area have been blown out, Decker said from the scene of the bombing. Ukrainian director-turned-soldier Ola Sentsov discusses war. The Ukrainian writer-director Ola Sentsov will not be at the Venice Film Festival this year, or the one in Sofia, Bulgaria, or the one in Istanbul, or any of the others where his film Rhino is premiering. When I met Sentsov in Kiev, it wasn't as a filmmaker but rather as a soldier. My train from LVIV arrived late, after curfew, and the police informed me that regardless of my press pass, I would have to sleep in the station. Eventually I was able to hitch a ride to my hotel with the Red Cross, but, in the process of trying to avoid a night on the floor of the station, a friend put me in touch with Sentsov, who was nearby and offered to help. This was how I found myself having breakfast with him in a basement restaurant the following morning. I was interested in talking about Rhino, which I hadn't yet seen. He was far more interested in talking about the war. Sentsov, like many Ukrainians, was eager to point out that Russia's current assault on Ukraine is simply an escalation of a war it has waged since 2014, when it annexed Crimea and invaded the Donbass. That year, Russian authorities arrested Sentsov, a native of Crimea, on charges of suspicion of plotting terrorist acts. He was sentenced to 20 years and shipped to an Arctic prison. He endured torture and, to protest his conditions, survived a 145-day hunger strike. After five years, the Russians released him in a prisoner swap. As we sat in the restaurant, Sentsov brought up a map on his phone's partially shattered screen. He pointed to Hostomel, a suburb of Kiev near the Dnipro River. 
The unit in the Territorial Defense Forces of which he is deputy commander comprises about 75 soldiers. When I asked him his rank, lieutenant, captain, major, he said he didn't have one. When I asked him his unit's designation, a platoon, a company, or even a battalion, he said they simply called themselves, a squad. Rank and formal military terms weren't something they worried about. Putin's gas for rubles threat raises prospect Russia could turn off tap. A complete shutdown of Russia's gas supply to Europe is now looming as a possibility, with G7 nations refusing Vladimir Putin's demand to pay for Russian gas in rubles and Moscow insisting it will not export gas for free. Mr. Putin announced last week that Russia would only accept payments in rubles for natural gas deliveries to unfriendly countries, which includes all European Union members. The move appeared designed to prop up the ruble, which has collapsed against other currencies since Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the ensuing Western sanctions. Asked by reporters if Russia could cut natural gas supplies to European customers if they reject the demand to pay in rubles, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said in a conference call that, we clearly aren't going to supply gas for free. Russia supplies about 40% of Europe's gas needs. The G7 major economies rejected the ruble payment demand last week while US and German officials are due to meet with energy industry executives in Berlin this week to discuss ways to boost alternative supplies for Germany. Germany, the most reliant of any EU state on Russian energy, is exploring the possibility of importing additional gas from Norway, the Netherlands, and Qatar. But natural gas cannot be shipped and needs a pipeline, making any switch logistically challenging. Ukraine-Russia negotiations suggest progress, but West is skeptical. The declarations signaled a rare moment of optimism nearly five weeks into the bloody invasion. But US and other Western leaders were skeptical, saying they would judge Russia by its actions and not its words. Pentagon spokesman John Kirby said Russia's movement of troops away from Kiev appeared to be minimal, and numerous explosions were heard in the city Tuesday night. We're not convinced that the threat to the capital city has been radically diminished, Kirby said. The centerpiece of the Ukrainian proposal was a pledge that the country would give up its bid to join NATO in exchange for a security system guaranteed by international partners including the United States, Turkey and others. Ukrainian negotiators likened the offer to Article 5 of NATO's charter, which ensures the alliance's collective defense. The guarantor parties, including European countries, Canada and Israel, would provide Ukraine with military assistance and weapons if it were attacked, the negotiators said. Ukraine, in turn, would ensure it remained non-aligned and non-nuclear, although it would retain the right to join the European Union. The Ukrainian proposal also offered a 15-year timeline for negotiations with Russia over the status of Crimea, the Ukrainian peninsula annexed by Moscow in 2014. Mevlut Kavyusoglu, Turkey's foreign minister, said the discussions amounted to the most meaningful progress since the start of negotiations. Vladimir Medinsky, Russia's lead negotiator, characterized the talks to reporters afterward as a substantive conversation. In separate comments, however, he left open the possibility of additional attacks in northern Ukraine. De-escalation in the Kiev and Chernihiv directions does not mean a ceasefire, Medinsky said, according to Russia's state-run TASS news agency. Crypto and Russia-Ukraine war, what investors should know. Cryptocurrency has been thrust into the spotlight during the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin, BTC, and Ether, ETH, 
have been playing an unprecedented role in the war effort in both countries. As millions of Ukrainians flee their homes and even their country, they face a cap on cash withdrawals from banks, leaving cryptocurrency as a refuge for getting fast access to money. Meanwhile, global sanctions have compelled Russia to consider accepting cryptocurrency in exchange for energy exports. The decentralized crypto ecosystem has given both countries a flexible alternative for survival, while allowing people around the world to stay financially connected in times of crisis. These forces have further accelerated the adoption of crypto. However, reliance on cryptocurrency has its own set of challenges. Here's what you need to know about the role cryptocurrency has played in wartime, crypto's role in the Russia-Ukraine war. How crypto helps the Ukrainian and Russian war efforts. How cyber attacks affect the crypto market. Crypto's role in the Russia-Ukraine war. Looking for a way to provide fast help to Ukraine in response to the invasion, people from all over the world have been sending donations in the form of Bitcoin and Ether, the native token of the Ethereum blockchain, to the Ukrainian army and for humanitarian relief. The Ukrainian government has raised more than $60 million through crypto donations of Bitcoin, Ether and the stablecoin Tether, USDT. Crypto has proven to be a fast and effective way for the Ukrainian people to get immediate funding for supplies. At the height of the war, Ukraine passed a law to create a legal framework for cryptocurrency, allowing crypto exchanges to operate in the country and banks to open accounts for crypto firms. Ukraine's Ministry of Finance will also amend tax and civil codes to incorporate virtual assets. This marks a huge step forward for digital assets in terms of how they are viewed in Ukraine. Putin is executing an enormous heist of Ukraine's gas. Ukraine offered to forego ambitions of joining NATO on Tuesday, Wednesday AEDT, but only in exchange for security guarantees stronger than NATO's. At peace talks in Istanbul, where Roman Abramovich was present after recovering from his poisoning scare, Ukraine said it was prepared to give in to one of Vladimir Putin's key demands and abandon its quest to join NATO. But in return, it wants a binding commitment from countries such as the UK and US to come to its aid if it is attacked. In other words, it wants the same protection NATO membership confers under Article 5, which states that an attack on one is an attack on all. We want an international mechanism of security guarantees where guarantor countries will act in a similar way to NATO's Article 5, and even more firmly, said David Arakamia, one of the Ukrainian negotiators. No-fly zone. Under the plans put forward by the Ukrainians, a number of countries would sign up to act as unconditional guarantors. Ukraine named the US, UK, China, France, Germany, Canada, Israel, Italy, Poland and Turkey as potential guarantors. They would pledge to come to Ukraine's aid within three days if it came under any sort of attack, including hybrid warfare. That is tougher than Article 5, which does not have a deadline for action. Nor does it specify what sort of action members should take, whereas Ukraine out some options for its guarantors. They could provide arms, or impose a no-fly zone over Ukraine, said Mikhail Podolyak, one of the negotiators. But that last option made clear a potential flaw in the plan, even if Russia agrees, Ukraine will have to convince guarantor countries to sign the deal. The West has refused Ukrainian entreaties for a no-fly zone, for fear downing Russian aircraft could spark a third world war. Countries like Israel and China may be even more reluctant to get dragged in. Putin's demand for trade in rubles, and how it could work. 
On March 23, Russian President Vladimir Putin demanded that European countries must pay for all natural gas imports in rubles instead of the US dollar or the euro. The European Union imports 40% of its natural gas requirements. According to reports coming out of Russia, Putin said Russia would not accept natural gas payments in currencies that have compromised. This list of currencies included dollars and euros. I have decided to implement a set of measures to transfer payment for our gas supplies to unfriendly countries into Russian rubles, Putin is reported to have said. The list of unfriendly countries includes the EU nations, the US and the UK. Predictably, in the immediate aftermath of this announcement, prices of both natural gas and its substitute crude oil spiked. Why did Putin do this? The move to accept payments only in rubles has been done to increase the demand for rubles in the international market. The ruble had been weakening against the dollar in the weeks before Russia invaded Ukraine. It went from being around 75 to dollar to around 85 to dollar, meaning 10 more rubles were required to buy a single dollar in the international market between the start of 2022 and Russia's invasion of Ukraine on February 24. However, after the invasion, the ruble's value plummeted to almost 145 within a fortnight. Apart from chasing away every investor for obvious reasons of war and uncertainty, the key factor that punished the Russian currency was the set of sweeping sanctions that Western countries applied on Russia. People walk past a currency exchange office screen displaying the exchange rates of US dollar and euro to Russian rubles in Moscow's downtown, Russia, Tuesday, March 29, 2022. AP photo, there were two essential aspects to these sanctions. One, they banned most exports, from luxury goods to military goods, out of Russia. Russian flights were banned over the US, UK, EU, and Canadian airspace. What are war crimes, and will Putin be tried for them? Since invading Ukraine in late February, Russia has allegedly bombed a maternity hospital and a theater filled with civilians and blocked aid convoys trying to bring food and water to people trapped in a besieged city. Assaults like these have caused international alarm and are now being investigated as possible war crimes. On March 23, the United States officially declared that members of the Russian armed forces have committed war crimes in Ukraine. In the announcement, U.S. Secretary of State Andrew Blinken said the U.S. would pursue accountability using every tool available, including criminal prosecutions. That doesn't mean that the U.S. will haul Russian soldiers or leaders into court, Tufts professor Tom Dannenbaum explained. The U.S. has not passed the legislation necessary to do that. But the U.S. may share information with allies and international institutions that can prosecute individuals for war crimes. The announcement indicates that the U.S. government wants criminal justice to be pursued in this situation, said Dannenbaum, an assistant professor of international law at the Fletcher School. The statement suggests that the administration wants to facilitate such processes where possible, and that it is going to devote resources to doing that. The International Criminal Court, ICC, based in the Netherlands, is investigating possible war crimes and crimes against humanity that may have been committed in Ukraine. A growing number of countries with the legal jurisdiction to do so have also launched investigations, said Dannenbaum, who writes extensively on the laws of war and is the author of The Crime of Aggression, Humanity, and the Soldier. Tufts now spoke with Dannenbaum to learn more about war crimes, how they're defined, and whether a leader like Russian President Vladimir Putin is likely to be tried for committing them.
Defense official says real withdrawal is complete withdrawal from Ukraine. The Russians have said they are withdrawing forces from around Ukraine's capital city of Kiev, and so far, reports show that some, but not many, Russian forces have indeed moved away from the area. But where those troops are going and why is likely less about signaling a willingness to end a bloody and illegal war, and more about repositioning of forces elsewhere to focus on alternative and potentially more successful military objectives. Has there been some movement by some Russian units away from Kiev in the last day or so? Yeah. We think so. Small numbers, said Pentagon Press Secretary John F. Kirby during a briefing today. But we believe that this is a repositioning, not a real withdrawal, and that we all should be prepared to watch for a major offensive against other areas of Ukraine. A real commitment, a believable one, Kirby said, would involve a complete withdrawal of all Russian forces from Ukraine. They have an opportunity here, an opportunity that they have missed, many, many times over the last month to end this war and to do it responsibly and to negotiate in good faith, Kirby said. We hope that they'll do that. But the war could end today if Mr. Putin did the right thing and actually did withdraw all his forces from Ukraine and respect Ukrainian sovereignty. From the onset, Kirby said, the Russians have attempted to mislead the world and its own people about its intentions for Ukraine. We've seen that Russia has attempted now for going on a month to sell this war of theirs to its domestic audience as a liberation of the Donbass, Kirby said. However, the intensified rhetoric over the last year and in the lead-up to Russia's invasion demonstrated that the Kremlin's real intent was to overthrow the democratically elected government and to occupy or annex large portions of Ukraine. U.S. skeptical of Russian claims it's scaling back the war in Ukraine. We'll see. I don't read anything into it until I see what their actions are. We'll see if they follow through what they're suggesting, Biden said at the White House, where officials were busy digesting intelligence and reports from the ground that Russian troops were moving their focus away from Ukraine's capital toward other areas of the country. Biden's don't-trust-but-verify approach reflects deep American skepticism at Russian President Vladimir Putin's motives amid his month-long invasion of Ukraine. While the U.S. has observed movements of Russian forces away from Kiev, there remains doubt the Russian assault on Ukraine will end soon. Some Western officials viewed Russia's moves as a mere tactical exercise amid a stalled campaign in Ukraine. U.S. officials also said Russia could always reverse itself if the battle conditions allow. Similarly, American officials appeared wary of voicing optimism about ongoing negotiations between Russia and Ukraine, which both sides suggested Tuesday had yielded progress. Instead, Biden was focused on ensuring the stringent sanctions regime he's enacted with European allies remains in place as the hostilities continue. Meeting in Istanbul, Russian and Ukrainian teams began outlining the contours of a settlement, including discussions over the status of Crimea, which Russia annexed in 2014, and Donbass, the eastern region that Russia claims is independent. Ukraine's neutral status and international security guarantees are also up for discussion, as is a potential meeting between Putin and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. U.S. officials have questioned Putin's seriousness in negotiating an end to the violence from the start of the crisis. Some have also made plain they aren't certain of Zelensky's endgame in the talks and are wary of whatever concessions he may offer. What does Russia want in Ukraine? 
The United States is seeing Russia starting to withdraw some combat forces near the Ukrainian capital city of Kiev for possible moves to other areas, the top U.S. general in Europe confirmed to Congress on Tuesday, in what could mark a major strategic shift from the Kremlin a month into its mostly stalled war. The decision, confirmed during a Senate hearing by General Todd Wolters, the head of U.S. European Command and NATO's Supreme Allied Commander, marks a striking shift from Russia. U.S. and European officials previously believed Moscow had designs on taking the Ukrainian capital, home to over two million people, in a bid to overthrow Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and install a pro-Russian puppet government. Instead, in recent weeks, Ukrainian troops have driven back Russian forces near the capital with determined counterattacks, contesting the cities of Bukha, Irpin, and Hostomel. The Russian Ministry of Defense said on Tuesday it had opted to drastically reduce hostilities in the direction of Kiev and Chernihiv. CNN first reported that the United States had already begun to see movements of Russian battalion tactical groups toward the east. The United States is seeing Russia starting to withdraw some combat forces near the Ukrainian capital city of Kiev for possible moves to other areas, the top U.S. general in Europe confirmed to Congress on Tuesday, in what could mark a major strategic shift from the Kremlin a month into its mostly stalled war. The decision, confirmed during a Senate hearing by General Todd Wolters, the head of U.S. European Command and NATO's Supreme Allied Commander, marks a striking shift from Russia. U.S. and European officials previously believed Moscow had designs on taking the Ukrainian capital, home to over two million people, in a bid to overthrow Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and install a pro-Russian puppet government. Yukon women's basketball beats NC State in double OT thriller to reach Final Four. But it was far from easy. It was an Elite Eight game for the ages featuring a season-ending injury and the Huskies' first overtime game of the season one team trying to make history while the other trying to extend its own. The number two-seeded Huskies will fly to Minneapolis for their 22nd appearance in the national semifinals after defeating number one NC State 91-87 in double overtime Monday in the Elite Eight at Total Mortgage Arena in Bridgeport. The win was UConn's first overtime victory in the NCAA tournament and the first double overtime game in the history of the women's NCAA tournament. It was pretty remarkable. It's one of the best games I've ever been a part of since I've been at UConn, regular season, postseason, doesn't really matter, UConn coach Gino Arima said. It was just amazing the way the 10 kids that are on the court are playing for their lives. Nobody wants to lose, and everybody is making big play after big play, and nobody backed down from the moment. Just really proud of these guys. They don't make it easy, but they make it worth it. UConn, 30-5, will face number one seed and reigning national champion Stanford on Friday at 9.30 p.m. on ESPN for the chance to play in Sunday's championship and compete for the program's 12th national title. Number one South Carolina and number one Louisville will face off in the other semifinal at 7 p.m. Paige Bukers had her best game since returning from her knee surgery, scoring 27 points to lead the Huskies, 23 in the second half and overtime. It was the sophomore's ninth game back since returning on February 25 after spending 10 weeks recovering from a tibial plateau fracture and a meniscus tear. Senior Kristen Williams added 21 and freshman Azzy Fudd 19, 49 minutes. Jakia Brown-Turner scored a team-high 20 for the Wolfpack. Cam Newton backs new overtime league for high school football players. Media company Overtime is starting another amateur sports league, 
this time for high school football players. The Brooklyn, New York-based company will launch a low-contact, 7-on-7 football league in June called OT7, it announced Tuesday. The move comes more than a year after Overtime launched a high school-level basketball league. The football program will run from June 9 through June 12 in Las Vegas. Overtime said it plans to pay for expenses around the league using a portion of the $80 million it raised in April 2021 from investors including Jeff Bezos Investment Firm and global entertainer Drake. NFL quarterback Cam Newton is also an investor in OT7. Terms of Newton's investment were not made available. Overtime co-founder Dan Porter told CNBC the company is doubling down on amateur leagues. We're focused on the biggest, most popular sports and finding our audience in those sports where we can effectively make something bigger than it had been, he said. Overtime distributes original sports content on social media outlets, including Snapchat, Alphabet's YouTube and Meta's Facebook. The company says it has more than 50 million followers across its social media channels. Its revenue comes from two sources, indirectly aligning with brands by integrating them into online media content and making money from video ads, and through e-commerce with its apparel offerings. CNBC reported last year that Overtime raised more than $140 million since its launch in 2016. PitchBook estimated Overtime's valuation reached $280 million in March 2021. Porter declined to reveal specifics about the company's valuation other than to say it's less than $1 billion. ACC totals 165 CSCAA All-America Honors, UVA NAB's top women's honors. Atlantic Coast Conference swimmers and divers totaled 165 CSCAA All-America Honors for the 2021-22 season following their performances at the NCAA Championships. ACC women piled up 102 All-America honors, and ACC men compiled 63 All-America performances. Virginia head coach Todd DeSorbo was named CSCAA Women's Division I Coach of the Year for the second consecutive year after leading UVA to its second straight NCAA championship. The Cavaliers' Kate Douglas was named CSCAA Division I Women's Swimmer of the Year followed a record-breaking performance at the NCAA Championships, where she won three individual races and broke American records in each. The awards were determined by a nationwide vote of CSCAA member Division I head swimming coaches and head diving coaches. One additional vote was determined by the public via online polling. On the women's side, eight ACC schools had individuals and or relays earn All-America status at the NCAA championships, with the ACC totaling 102 All-America honors, 53 first-team, 49 second team. Virginia led all schools and nationally with 33 All-America honorees, 25 first team, 8 second team. On the men's side, 8 ACC schools had individuals and or relays pick up All-Americans through their performances at the NCAA championships. The ACC racked up 63 total All-America honors, 35 first team, 28 second team. NC State led all ACC schools with 18 All-America honorees, 12 first-team, 6 second-team. First-team honors were awarded to individuals and relays that finished first through eighth at the NCAA championships. Second-team honors went to individuals and relays that placed ninth through 16th at NCAAs.